people want to do business with business people today. They don't want someone to persuade them about anything. They have a unique problem. They want someone that can bring value, understand their business, as well as they understand the business, and then show them how they can solve their unique business problem. And they're asking the whole time, so what? Why does that matter? And if you can build that relationship and bring that value as a true business professional, then that's what they want. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Michael Tisi. He's Vice President for RICO Global Services America. And today, Michael is joining me with his son, John Tisi, who's a senior account executive at Alation in what is the first father-son guest pairing on our podcast. And in this multi-generational show, we compare and contrast selling and sales careers. Michael has worked for one company, Rico, for 37 years. John is already working at his fifth company in his career. And I share the advice that Michael gave John as they thought about getting into sales in the first place, as well as the advice he gave John when John left his first sales job, which just happened to be at the same company that Michael works for. Michael also talks about the changes he's seen in selling and in salespeople over the course of his career and what it takes to be a good leader today. We can also get into the differences in how John and Michael view selling. And we talk about a series of short inspirational videos that Michael posts on LinkedIn called TC Tuesday. In this case, we dive into one that he created about the five things you need to focus on every day that take zero talent and that you control, which is a perspective I absolutely share. So we'll get into all this and much, much more. But before we get to Michael and John, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could leave us a review, give us your feedback about how we're doing. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. So John, welcome back to the show. And Michael, welcome for the first time to the show. Thank you. So this is, this is a first for me. This is uh, having a father and son combination in sales. I mean, I don't really haven't seen that too often, surprisingly. Because um, a lot of times I ask people when they come on the show, you know, how'd you get into sales or would you have a parent in sales? And pretty infrequent though that's been the case. So, uh, Michael, you're responsible for John's success then. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> Maybe influencing it a bit, but not responsible for it. All right. So uh, we'll start with you, Michael. Tell us a little bit about you and what you do and yeah, what you sell. Well, thank you for having us. And yes, I'm... Uh, I'm a sales leader for Rico. Uh, I lead our global account team based in the U.S. for uh, our largest truly global accounts. I've been with Rico since college, <laughs> so a long time. So that was uh, how long ago? Ah, it's a few years. It's a few years. It's on your LinkedIn profile. You have to say. Yeah, so. it is. It is. Thirty-seven years, I think. Thirty-seven is what it said. years. Yeah. Is that what it is? That's crazy, but great. Yeah. It's been fantastic. I'm a passionate sales leader. Um, uh, I uh, I have just loved every minute of uh, of you know. The path that I've taken, uh, although it's sort of rare to be with one company all those years, <laughs> but it's been great. I have uh, I've thrived in a, a sales-driven environment, 
uh, for all those years. So, uh, and I still every day get up loving, absolutely loving leading a, a team of global account directors to uh, to bring uh, value to their big customers. So uh, it's great. It's been fantastic. So when you started at Rico, what, what were you selling? What was your first job there? I was selling copy machines, of course. Copy machines, of course. Well, I, I presume. But so at that time, you were selling them direct. They weren't going through like uh, office supply stores or anything yeah. like that. I started with Lanier. We were a distributor for 3M. Uh, when mm-hmm. I first started, I had to buy a van so that I could load <laughs> copy machines in the back of the van and go. So you could cold do demos. <laughs> yeah. Yep. yep. Everyone told me, whatever you do, don't sell copiers. So I was like, okay, and made that investment and uh, just loved every minute of the, the competitive nature of the business. Well, explain what your your day was like when you're at that job, you just started, because that's probably very similar to what mine was like at the same time. Yeah. Well, the work ethic at Lanier was incredible. They taught us that we showed up at the office at 7 a.m., we, uh, we had a, a sales meeting. We loaded our vans and we went out into the field and we, we just prospected. We cold called. Uh, we spent a lot of time just door to door and trying to build relationships and, and show our product. And uh, I would just go in and, and introduce myself and, and try to get them to like me and want to hear more about what I had to say and, uh, and then bring in a, a device for them to look at. Uh, and were you calling on small business or what type of business were you calling? Any kind of business. Any. So would you like go in a high rise and walk? Yes. Those are, see, we used to fight when I was, my first job is there weren't many high rises. I was in the East Bay area of San Francisco Bay area. So with Oakland, there weren't many high rises in Oakland, but we used to fight. You know, we had raced on a rainy day to the high to rise. To the high rise. Every rep because around was in there. rainy days, everybody <laughs> wanted to be in the high rises. <laughs> so, but yeah, it sounds like you were doing what I was doing, which was I was working for Burroughs. Yeah. Back when Burroughs existed. And yeah, I'd drive to a local office park, park the car. So they door taught us. Door to door to door. They taught us too. They taught us well. So at five o'clock, rather than circling back to the office, well, that's when, you know, the receptionist went home or the gatekeeper. So, hey, you make uh, calls between five and six. You know, just uh, finding an office park or, and look, and then they would teach us to look for the Mercedes or the BMW mm-hmm. out there and get in front of the decision maker. And then a crazy sales manager I had even taught us, well, then at, at you know, you could even at seven o'clock, you can go to the mall and make more calls. And I kind of cut out uh, that part. Yeah, of it's it, like but, that's beyond the pale for me. Yeah. But, <laughs> but they told yeah, us but well. there's all. Yeah, the whole thing about five after five, right? Exactly. Five after five. Five calls after five o'clock. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good time to catch it. John, did you learn that as well? I honestly did. I mean, that was both through starting my career, but through osmosis of years of training around the house and in the very room that uh, my dad's sitting in right now recording this, I think. (laughs) Well, so that's a question I had for you. So what... What what were you picking up about sales just, you know, over the dinner table or whatever, because that might have consciously or unconsciously influenced you to want to go into sales? Um, there's a lot. Uh, I think back to a couple things. One is outlining around the work ethic side. I mean, you grow up around it. You see it. It just you, you kind of learn that's just what you do. Mm. Um and I, I think kind of through osmosis, just understanding things around not just the like hours aspect of work ethic, but also the intentionality around 
sitting watching Sunday night football or whatever. And my dad has his laptop and he's doing preparation for the week, right? Like those small things that like at the time, I don't know, maybe I was doing homework or probably not paying attention at all. But like now I think back to, and guess what I'm doing on Sunday night while I'm watching Sunday night football. I'm like, Oh, all right. Picked up that Uh, (laughs) among other things. And I think the other big thing, um, especially this time of year around the holidays is just showing appreciation for people. And that, that people is your customers, your prospects and the people that you work, that work for you and you work with um, in small ways and large. So I think that really has carried over really well uh, as I've gotten started in, in sales. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems that that is at least in my mind and certainly what I see is that's oftentimes sort of the hardest thing about people coming into sales is this idea that somehow they have to put on this act and be a salesperson as opposed to, you know, being a human being. And lead with being a human and then do the sales thing second. Uh, you had that benefit, I guess, of growing up and seeing that that, <laughs> that wasn't the way to act, is to lead with being a human is the right way to do it. Well, and I think also the, the whether it's with one company for 37 years or just being in sales or sales leadership for 37 years, you get, you, like, it's not... It, okay, something happens within the course of an hour, right? Like there's a much larger scale of time here that um, you got to look at the long game and, and be able to understand how those chess pieces all match up. And so the decisions you make today or things you get frustrated about today, how those ultimately impact tomorrow and a week from now and, and 37 years from now, right? Mm-hmm. So did you ever, John, did you ever think about not going into sales? I was very close to taking a role with a small um, sports marketing firm out of school. And I was between that and a, a AE role actually at Rico um, doing commercial sales. And it really came down to the wire until right after I graduated. So I, I was very close to going to the marketing side of it. Uh, yeah. Ended up going the sales path and haven't looked back. I mean, it was a great opportunity, but... Um, very happy with what I ended up doing. So what was the conversation like with, with uh, dad when you were thinking about, okay, moving on from Rico? <laughs> he, he stayed out of the Rico part of it uh, okay. <laughs> for, for very good reason, I'm sure, um, politically. But no, I think a lot of the conversations that we had were more about like what kind of lifestyle do you want to have? Because those are two very different jobs. And that, coming out of school, I wasn't thinking about it in that way. I was thinking about it right. as like, this sounds really cool, but also how in the world am I going to pay bills in northern New Jersey on, you know, a, a six month um, guaranteed salary of much lower than what an apartment I would versus, hey, you can come out of school and go into a sales career and, and right. be very re- directly responsible for your own income in some fashion and, and right. starting to think about travel and starting to think about working during in a B2B setting versus working with clients that are 24 seven. It's just a all of a sudden it became very, you know, looking back on my values and what I value, it Mm -hmm. aligned really well. Yeah. Interesting. Mike, I presume, I mean, I was talking to John before we started recording is, is you and I are roughly same age group. Um, Yeah. I know very few people that stayed at one company, you know, it was very common for years of my father generation. Right. And people stayed, but much more or less so, I mean, surely there were opportunities to go. I was wondering what was the, sort of the calculus in your mind as you're looking at, you know, take another opportunity outside or stick with what you're going. And because I think it's valuable for people listening is that 
one of my concerns always is, is that I think sellers jump too quickly between roles before they really get a chance to master something and moving on. I just wondering what your, your take has been on that and how that was, you know, factored into your own career decisions. It's uh, it is, it is rare. Um, I, I do agree with you that maybe they uh, move sometimes a little too quickly. Uh, for me, it just was uh, a fit from the beginning. Uh, culture wise, uh, I thrived in, in the culture. I was always very, very happy uh, to be part of the, the the type of organization that that Rico is. I uh, I did resign twice and got promoted no. both times. So I sort of <laughs> guess I never wanted to really leave. <laughs> right. So I was ready to go out the door, and then you know they they valued me and uh, gave me more money and promoted me. So I stayed, I wouldn't do that now, <laughs> but, but it's been, uh, it's well, been a fantastic, you played a, you played a strong hand, obviously. <laughs> it's, but the culture, it's all about the culture and, and, and uh, good people and, and a good, fair, high, highly ethical organization that I believe in the values of, I think is why I, uh, why I'm still here. Yeah. And I, that's an interesting question because I, I wrote about that this week on LinkedIn about it's all about the fit, right? I, I don't believe there are necessarily good salespeople and bad salespeople. I think you're either in a good situation or not in a good situation. And yeah, I think sometimes sellers do themselves a disservice because they're in a good situation, but there's some, and part it's more cultural these days and you know, just everybody wants to you know, grasp the brass ring, but sometimes the path to the brass ring is staying, not leaving. And and you're bound to. I mean, there's you're going to you're going to face adversity. You're going to have times when you feel like leaving, right? You feel like quitting. There's something that happened that might not have been the you know you felt handled the right way. And uh, and sometimes I feel like people leave uh, or and, and aren't loyal and stick through that. Um, and I think uh, so. It's it's uh, something that I chose to do. I understand certainly when. Um, when opportunities present themselves and if you have a better career path to, to leave and to, to improve yourself uh, and, and, and provide a better uh, uh, quality of life and income for your family, certainly, then it makes sense to do it. Yeah. Well, I think, I think people don't think deeply enough about that. I mean, I, I, I'm, I think, as I said before, I think people should stay longer at places. I mean, it's, it's, I think we're too often, and I see this with with the problems that exist in current generation, sort of in improving sales performance, just like in the AE level, as you know, frontline managers. Oftentimes, you know, especially in the world we're in, they're not given the training they needed, the support they need, and thus they really can't help their sellers because they don't have the experience themselves to really understand how they can help people. And yeah, they would have been better. Hey, instead of grabbing that first promotion as, you know, sell for a couple more years, really learn what you're doing and then, then grasp that. I agree. I mean, it's hard to convince people that. What do you think, John? Yeah, I, I mean, I lived it in a couple different ways. I got, um, out of my first commercial, I, I got promoted to a manager role and the team did well numerically, like performance wise over the course of that year. But I uh, personally did not handle it great and eventually <laughs> actually went back to an individual contributor role by choice, right. um, specifically because I, just, I was 23. I had a lot of stuff going on at work and otherwise that I just didn't, it wasn't ready for, not in an, 
I probably would have done it again, but I think I would have done it a little differently. Uh, that said, that's a good example of it. And then I've, I've moved companies a couple times um, for a lot of reasons that I wouldn't have seen coming before they happened. And, and typically that's involved things like acquisitions, things like changes in leaderships, a lot of those type of changes. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of that acceleration of all of those things too. I mean, what, the average tenure of the, the CRO now is down well below 18 months or what have you. And so that's the other thing you see with that is it's people leaving and changing, but also that starting at the top and the trickle down effect of that and the little tribes that get created within these um, organizations that, okay, my tribe's moving from here to there. Well, that's going to have a trickle down effect sometimes (laughs) of all that. So that's what I've seen. It's been an interesting case study, I think, and not just um, company to company, but uh, the, the conversation about loyalty to people versus loyalty to a company, which has been a really interesting thing to, to watch and be a part of, certainly. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, that whole migration of a tribe is an interesting topic. I mean, I may take that up on a future episode because it's, <laughs> it's, it's actually, it's pretty problematic. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I advise CEOs not to hire tribes of people because, Unless they were in a position where they were, as a tribe, were you know above average, stellar performers at the previous situations, what makes you think they'll come and do any better in your environment? Uh, there might be individuals that are really good, so yeah, build a build the team. But yeah, not big on importing tribes. So, Mike, I was curious, is you know because you've seen numbers of generations uh, come and go at the same company is, is what are some of the biggest changes you think in your mind that you've seen in selling B2B selling both positive and negative? Uh, there, obviously uh, there have been a lot of changes in from a technology perspective. We have uh, tools sure. that we, we can use today that are just fantastic. Right. Um, the way the way uh, you prospect, the way and social selling has been enormous, and the ability to put your brand out there, build your brand and and your company's brand, and and uh, connect with people uh, via uh, social media. So there have been a lot of changes. I, I will say though, uh, on on kind of on the contrary, there's some things that'll just never change, right? I mean, see, key, key basics. I mean, people, relationships, it still always will be about the relationship. And do I, you know, do, do I trust you? And do I, uh, do I, are you the type of person uh, that can help me solve my business problem? And, and if I feel like you bring value and, and I trust you and I like you, hey, I'm probably going to find a way to, to let you talk to me about, about your solution. So, that will never change, I don't think, and that's uh, kind of. But there's some people, some people that make the argument that it has, and I, I, just by caveat, I think they're dead wrong. <laughs> but you know, there are people out there, more of John's generation, saying eh, relationships. Pfft, no one, the buyers don't want a relationship. Yada 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 yada, and it's like. Yeah, I I think you're wrong about that, or not. I know you're wrong about that. I've had arguments with people about that on the show. It's like, it's like, yeah, we've we've we certainly have some great technology and tools that you talked about, but it hasn't repealed the way people think. The way you know, give us another ten thousand years, evolve evolution that might happen, but internet hasn't changed people's brains in in ten years or twenty years. 
I think you've also seen the division of labor impact that too, at mm-hmm. least in the SaaS space. Like we have, you know, SDRs on the front end, we have AEs right. that are sort of in the middle, but the AEs are not really responsible for delivery versus right. a full cycle rep, um, which is what, you know, you both came up as, and I came up as too so in, in my earlier roles. Like the relationship's crucial because you got to shepherd through all of that versus I do think you see reps now or, or folks in that pipeline now that it's like, okay, as an SDR, I don't really need to form a relationship because all I have to do is log the meeting, right? And then as an right. AE, you're like, all right, whatever, I got the meeting here. My job is to get you to buy this. And then it goes off to implementation and customer success, right? So I think they're also, you see that as a, I don't know if that's a symptom or a problem, but I've noticed that that's an impact both. on the relationship conversation. Yeah, no, I think it's it's both, right? I mean, uh, yeah, <laughs> I've just had this conversation. I'm laughing because I just had this right before jumping on this. It's like, okay, is is you can say relationships are important, but the fact is, most of the the data that exists, the research has been done, said that you know the majority of a buyer's purchase decision is based on their interaction with the individual seller. Still is, and I so, think. Still is, absolutely. Still is. Oh, yeah, I don't think that's changed. I mean, that was current data. I mean, it, yeah. was, it was in the Challenger sale. It's been other people have researched about it. So the idea of the buying experience on the part of the buyer is, is huge. And what buying experience are you delivering to, to the customer? And, yeah, I think a lot of companies, especially in the SaaS world, just are not focused on that at all. And could be the reason that, you know, sort of win rates in that industry are relatively low. Well, it might, I think there's also a fear that it's not scalable, right? A person and their relationships, you can't scale that once you hit, okay, next round of funding. Okay, we're going to hire 20 more salespeople. We can't replicate the success that, you know, rep A, B, and C had because they are successful in part because of their relationships and because of their experience. So the defaults to the mentality of, all right, well, we'll come up with a system that's you know, either more predictable or at least more, more um, cogs in a wheel in the sense of how it's displayed, right? Instead of, okay, individually, like why are these people successful if we go hire more individuals like that? But that's not, you can't report that to a board, right? That's not, that's not reportable. Well, at some point, at some point there's a way of reckoning, right? Yeah. So, I mean, every company, unless they're, in a an industry where there yeah you know, there's quote unquote infinite tam <laughs> that at some point they're going to slash and burn through all of it and they're going to actually have to sell something <laughs> i mean that's right i mean as, as opposed to right now is a lot of times it's just sort of playing the odds right i'll put enough crap in the top of the funnel we'll do a predictable but mediocre job of getting people through the funnel and we'll close a certain percentage of them a certain low percentage of them which is sort of the, the MO oftentimes. And it's like, yeah. And that's why I was asking a question about, you know, what you see, Michael, as you've come through your career. So it's like, yeah, it's, are people really learning how to sell in the way that, that Michael is talking about? That it is about the people still. I mean, this is what my new book is all about is, is that, yeah, you can have your process and everything, but at the end of the day, it's all about how you connect with people, the questions you ask, the understanding you develop, what's most important to them, and how you help them get that. Absolutely. It is. And it's pretty simple when you look at it that way. But I think we've, we've – I'm curious, Michael, in how you guys at Rico, how you train your sellers and so on, is 
you know, I like to ask questions of sellers is, is like when I'm talking <laughs> in public groups or large groups is like, okay, so what's your job as a salesperson? And invariably it sort of comes out as, well, my job is to persuade somebody to buy my product. And I sort of think of that, well, I don't really think that's your job, right? I think your job is to understand what's most important to them and help them get that. Exactly. People, people want to do business with business people today. They don't want someone to persuade them about anything. They, want, right. they have a unique problem. They want someone that can bring value, understand their business as well as they understand the business, uh, and then show them how they can solve their unique business problem. Uh, and, and, and they're asking the whole time, so what? You know, so why, why, why does that matter? And if you can build that relationship and bring that value as a true business professional, then that, that's what they want. Um, you know, you have that, that old pyramid, right? At the top of the pyramid is a trusted advisor. At the bottom is the lowly vendor. If, if you're the trusted mm -hmm. advisor and you're bringing value and you can get climb higher into the organization to the people that can make the big decisions, then that then you're 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 going to be successful in in yeah yeah yeah. And I would say that I mean because again I, the question I get asked is because sellers are sort of fearful. It's like well going into these high level meetings is you know I don't expose what I don't know, which is oftentimes that fear drives them into acting a certain way. It's like I don't know, Michael. I, I made John too. It's like. I've never had a customer criticize me for asking a question and seeking to understand. I mean, oftentimes it's you're much better off exposing what you don't know other than trying to pretend that you know something that you don't. I think you just talked about that on, um, I'm blanking on your guest, but from Box of Crayons, right? Or talking about curiosity. Yeah, Shannon Minifee. Yeah. Yes. So, so curiosity sometimes be, and where I work now at Alation, it certainly is, and I think they've done a phenomenal job of, of, both promoting and, and encouraging curiosity and driving that into those business conversations. But to back to the point you were around those executive conversations is uh, you're yeah, a fear of being exposed, but that can very easily be overcome by just make forming us curiosity. Right. I think there right. needs to be that balance between information, like you said, of, of coming in with context and an opinion, but also not being afraid to ask very basic questions and very human questions, right? Like not wasting somebody's time at the same time, Hey, how does this impact you? Or like, okay, great. You got promoted. Do you like your job? Like, are you excited about this? Is this good? Like, <laughs> Always a good question to ask. Yeah. I mean, I, I learned that very early on in my career is, is my first job out of school, working for Burroughs, selling, you know, room size computers to construction industry. And as I like to say, I was 21 and I look 16 and, you know, talking to these successful entrepreneurs, CEOs of these companies. I knew nothing, right? I was a history major. Yeah. And what I found pretty quickly is that, yeah, if you're just really interested, sincerely interested in them and learning about what they're doing and learning again, learning what's most important to them, they'll give you all the time in the day. I mean, that was my business school. My business school was my first two years of, of selling to these people. That's where I learned so much. And I think in, in, uh, in today's world, in a complex environment that we're in, uh, my, my friend Phil Stryland uh, from the Summit Group, he says, the ability to bring simplicity 
to their complexity. If you can mm-hmm. present, if you can solve their problem and make it uh, appear or not appear, but bring simplicity to that, to that chaotic environment that they're in with your solution, yep. that's ultimately what, what, what your, your customer wants. Yeah, I mean, if you can help move them through their process, their process, as you said, in the, in the process of doing so, uh, simplify it. Absolutely. Agree 100%. Hmm. So, uh, Michael, if you had to get into sales today, what would you do? <laughs> I would love it. <laughs> I, I would, uh, well, I what, what field would interest it you? It would be technology. It would probably be doing what John's doing, something like that. Something, uh, you know, exciting. Um, I don't know if, uh, maybe a little more established for me, but, uh, you know, I would, uh, I'd be in a technology <laughs> environment for sure. <laughs> <laughs> a little more established. Yeah. John, have anybody you work for gone out of business yet? <laughs> we're uh we're doing all right but it's no I i'm not talking about your current job i'm talking to anybody in your resume so far yeah no uh but i have been through two acquisitions which i've okay. been through as well so right. the, the reverse of going out of business but changing the business very very quickly <laughs> yeah yeah inheriting well you sort of allude to inheriting bosses that are problematic uh, i certainly had that happen in one case where yeah, CEO of an acquiring company that was not my cup of tea. Um, it was good. Yeah, it motivated me to back the whole issue of fit, right? I mean, I think as a salesperson, you need to look at fit like your personal fits are like product market fit. You, know, you want to work for a company that's product market fit. Uh, yeah, you want to have a fit with the culture and uh, with the management feel that people are sort of invested in your success and you think you're going to have something to learn from the people you work for. And sort of back, harking back to the early part of our conversation, I just sometimes feel like sellers don't give enough consideration to that uh, these days. And it's, it's not going to help you in the long run. I mean, a series of 18 month stints, and believe me, I, I pioneered that whole resume strategy <laughs> back in the day. So um, yeah, at some point you got to stay. And I also, I think right now with the amount of money that's in private equity, there's that golden goose of equity that gets dangled out there for a lot of folks that, okay, I'm, I'm in a great position here, but this in-mail I just got, or my friend just went to this place and yeah, okay. The comp plan's pretty similar to what I have, but wow, look at the equity where really taking the time to actually analyze, all right, what are the odds that that equity Mm. actually is going to trend versus yeah, great. Okay, you're going there. You're sitting on a, a boatload of shares, but you still got to sell every day. <laughs> and yeah. that's a really, really big thing I've seen. Um, I have tried to avoid that myself, but I've seen a number of peers that have kind of gone into that with with that mentality of, of chasing the next big IPO play right. when, you know, you see, com- we, uh, Alation, we just got our, our Series E, but a company I just worked, I was at recently just got their Series F and one of our competitors just got their Series G. So it's, <laughs> you know, it's like it used to be you would go public a lot earlier than that. And I, that's well, the other thing you're seeing now. Right. But if you're working for a company that's just said their Series F and they get acquired, chances are as a common shareholder, you get nothing. Because yeah, with the preferences, <laughs> preferences, excuse me, all the preferred shareholders are cashed out first. So, uh, yeah, I wonder. Oftentimes, sellers aren't really cognizant of how options work. 
I mean, I, total credit to Howard Brown as CEO of, of Revenue.io that owns this podcast. Is just went through the entire company just to make sure, again, everybody really understood exactly what happens when you raise money and what the impact is for the, the common shareholders. And uh, yeah, if you're jumping ship to somebody that just raised their Series E, you may have gotten a lot of shares, but if they only pay off a penny per share because all the money got sucked up by the preferreds, then for what? Why'd you move? Right. And like you said, is the product market fit there? Is the culture there? And that's where, okay, that all of that's great, but I've seen it be way too overhyped. I've seen Alation certainly and, and places I've been in the past have done a great job of promoting, okay, yes, that's a nice benefit, right? But like, if you're coming here, it should be for the comp plan and the culture uh, and the opportunity that is here and now to build and scale the company, um, not just for a shiny you know, equity package. Yeah, and also the right person to work for. I mean, I think you you leave in a company, you're hiring your next manager. In essence, you're hiring your next manager. Make sure you do a good job of that. So a question for you, Michael, is how does, how does Rico train their frontline sales managers? Uh, they, they train uh, the sales managers um, a, a lot like, uh, I guess, uh, pretty much on the same types of philosophies uh, from a, the, as a sales team. Um, but um, as leaders, as as people, we, we look at uh, driving, um, you know, solid business results, the, 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 the normal activity based, but also just uh, solid leaders um, that care about their people. Uh, we invest in them a great deal. They're, they're, they're really, truly, you know, obviously the lifeblood that the frontline sales manager is, is so critical. Oh, absolutely. Um, and. Is there actual, you know, training classes they go to, yeah. or how's that? Yeah, there are. Okay, and I'm not, I'm not, I, I can't say that I'm real involved in the frontline sales training that we do today. Uh, I'm in more in, in my in global account program. I'm I'm a little detached from that, but I know we do have a solid um, sales frontline manager programs. Uh, you know, we we have also migrated some of the lower end um, business off to distributors, so we're 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 looking at kind of major account level is where mm-hmm. uh, we would uh, the first first line of managers would come in and they and they're pretty you know they're pretty good leaders and and but there is continual training continual investment um, you know uh, recommitted to 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 you know in, in this environment especially to uh, to training and developing our people is one of our key pillars. Yeah, because that really is, in my opinion, this is a weak link in the chain. Is how little we provide in general, especially in the tech industry, to frontline managers uh, to help them be more effective at their jobs. You know, we put them in a tough, tough position. They, you know, you get two good years of sales, then we throw somebody like John, throw somebody into management, uh, say, good luck, congratulations and good luck. And what do you know? You don't know anything. You barely know how to sell. You've been selling. I mean, I had similar situation happen to me. I mean, I had Two years, got promoted, and I had 12 people working for me, of which easily half of them were 10 or more years older than I was. <laughs> and, of course, they were anxious to take direction from me. Um, but I had the benefit of pretty great training at, at Burroughs, for the most part. It just doesn't exist. And many times, you know, that's that person that's been put in that position was an outstanding salesperson, but maybe yeah. doesn't have the skills to be a great 
frontline sales manager, uh, and 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 therefore sometimes you know, they don't get the, the the guidance, the training, and they end up leaving. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think that's unfortunate. I think it's sort of epidemic, I think, and at least in the tech spaces, we're just not <clears throat> giving people the tools they need to be effective. And so the result is, is that they default to focusing on activity and metrics and so on, as opposed to having the tools to say, how do I help this individual develop, right, and become a, a better performer? And um, that's why I was curious about what Rico does, because I we spend... $15 billion a year, roughly, in the U.S. in sales training. What? And I, John's, John's probably heard me say this on a show before, but I would, you know, if we spend 90% of it on individual sellers today, I would, and 10% on managers, I would flip that. I would put 90% on managers because I think you get a better, better outcome. And I think about the roles of, like, the global account directors, too. I mean, that's a almost a hybrid, right? They're working, they're direct, I mean, they work directly with the accounts, right? But they're, right. they have a whole team around them at Rico or at, at come, I've worked for Cisco in the past with very similar structurally right. that way. And so it's almost, you, you have to train them from a sales perspective to engage with their account, but also you are leading, you are the quarterback for lack of a better term of that team where you need to have those leadership capabilities and, and training and awareness um, so I think there's a formal training aspect of that part, but then also I know, um, you know, my dad's team, for example, on their team calls, he implements aspects of training and we do that here at Alation too, where right. okay, there's formal training, but there's also, Hey, we're going to do 15 minutes today on this topic, almost like a micro training, uh, or a yeah. skill mill here at Alation to kind of re-enhance those, those topics and, and be a little more agile about that type of development also. Right. Yeah. We just need more of it. Right is is I think the the scales have tipped too far in terms of process and metrics and KPIs, all important, but we seem to have left the people behind, and we need to bring the people along. No doubt, My no doubt. Yeah. All right, well, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a pleasure, a unique pleasure to have a family, two generations of sellers with the same family, <laughs> uh, both quite successful and. Uh, yeah, if I stick around long enough, Mike or John is maybe we can have three generations. We can get Ryan right? on the line if I stick around long enough too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you for having yeah, us, be, Andy. We'll be on episode three thousand then, I think. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's been a pleasure. So, uh, Michael, you you publish uh, usually an inspirational post on Tuesday, TC Tuesdays. Uh, you can find that on LinkedIn, right? Yes, you can. All right, so people connect with Michael on LinkedIn, and you can obviously, John, best way to connect with you, LinkedIn as well? LinkedIn as well, T-E-C-C-E. -E. There's not a lot of us, so you'll find both of us pretty quickly. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. So, all right, guys, thank you so much. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Andy. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest today, John Tesey and his father, Michael Tesey, for sharing their insights with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. <laughs>